At the cutout on the cane Your daddy's still fixing motors And a good guy married Macy There's still a religion round here Yeah, we crack a cold beer and raise them up To every Tennessee touchdown I wonder what you're doing in heaven right now They still ain't paved that road On Lower Licton Pike I still look for your truck sometimes, a Sonic on Friday night. I still punch the dashboard hurts every time I hear Eric Church sing. Sinners like me, I crank it up real loud. I wonder what you're doing in heaven right now. Are you fishing? Are you flying? How much greener is the grass? Are you older? Are you younger? Did time stop in his tracks? Anyway, thought I'd say, hey, just made my way past your mama's house. I wonder what you're doing in heaven right now. I still play the soul guitar, but the crowds have gotten bigger. My kids have never met you. They all know you from pictures When the whole crew gets together Memory lane goes on forever We twist the top Church last week Could you put in a word for me If you and God Get to hang out I look forward to catching up When my time comes around I wonder what you're doing In heaven right now I wonder what you're doing In heaven right now Hello everyone, my name is Simon Carver and welcome to Dagnall Street Baptist Church's podcast service for Sunday the 15th of May. In today's podcast we're looking at a passage that comes almost at the end of our Bibles and we will be considering how the vision that John saw connects God in heaven to where and who we are today. 
Our music today has a gospel and country focus. And you might be thinking, well, there's nothing new there. We've heard a song by Thomas Rhett that reflects on the nature of heaven. And later we'll hear Rory sing two gospel songs accompanied by Bogita. One of these songs was sung by a quartet at an Advent service here a few years ago. Well, just the one notice today. We are advertising for staff in our cafe, so please see the advert in today's email or you can view it on the church website. And if you do know of anyone who might be interested in this, then do please pass the information on. And now our call to worship, some verses from Psalm 148. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him from the skies. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all the armies of heaven. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you twinkling stars. Praise him, skies above. Praise him, vapours high above the clouds. Let every created thing give praise to the Lord. For he issued his command, and they came into being. He set them in place for ever and ever. His decree will never be revoked. Praise the Lord from the earth, you creatures of the ocean depths. Fire and hail, snow and clouds, wind and weather that obey him, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all livestock, small scurrying animals and birds, kings of the earth and all people, rulers and judges of the earth, young men and young women, old men and children. Let them all praise the name of the Lord, for his name is very great. His glory towers over the earth and heaven. He has made his people strong, honouring his faithful ones, the people of Israel who are close to him. Praise the Lord.
Come, let us praise the name of the Lord, the one whose name is so great, whose glory is above the earth and the heavens. Come, let us praise the name of the Lord, who was and is and is to come. Lord of the heavens and the earth, Lord of all creatures above and below ground, Lord of the oceans, the ebb and flow of tides, Lord of all our yesterdays written in the pages of history, Lord of what is to come, the story that is yet to unfold, Lord of our now, your presence among us, Lord of everything, your glory and majesty is supreme. Lord, you gave a commandment to love one another. You loved your disciples of old. You love us today. You will continue to love into eternity. Help us each day to give life to your words by sharing and showing your love to one another. It's not always easy and often we slip up. Sometimes what we say can be hurtful. Sometimes what we do can cause pain. We are sorry, Lord, for saying or doing what we shouldn't. Forgive us and help us to live out your words in our lives today. Help us to speak and show your love to one another and sow it forward into the future. Jesus knows our flaws and yet loves us unconditionally. Be assured of his forgiveness. He has wiped our slate clean. New beginnings beckon. Praise be to our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. A reading from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, beginning at the first verse. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne, saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. There is a book written by Simon Jenkins called England's Thousand Best Churches. From our non-conformist perspective, we might think that England's Thousand Best Churches will be a review of the mission and strength of faith of 1,000 congregations. But we have to remember that we are living in a country where church does not mean people, but rather bricks and mortar. The truth is that no one, whatever their church background, would seriously think that a book entitled England's Thousand Best Churches will be doing anything other than looking at buildings. To suggest otherwise is being accurate, but it's hardly living in the real world. But maybe we need to remind ourselves what the church really is. 
Our word church is derived from the same Greek word from which the Scots and German words kirk and kirche are derived, and it means belonging to the Lord. If you prefer your languages to be of the Latin variety, then you'll know that the French word for church is église, which is derived from a different Greek word, which means a congregation. Neither of these two words for church has a meaning which is anything other than a description of people. People who belong to the Lord or people who have gathered. Where the word that means belonging to the Lord and the one that means a gathering come together is in the two phrases that are regularly used in the New Testament to mean the Church of God and the Church of Christ. We can bring together these two ideas in one expression, a gathering of people who belong to the Lord. The author of England's Thousand Best Churches visited five churches before lunch every Sunday for several years, but never once with the intention of worshipping God. He was certainly open to the idea of religious experience, but his experience in these buildings was not of living Christianity. For me, he writes, the experience is not of faith, but rather of the memory of faith present in an old building. Now, there is nothing wrong with remembrance. Part of Christian worship is calling to mind the acts of God in words and as we reenact them when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We too remember the events of the past within our own church building. Ours are walls which have heard the hymns and prayers of many generations. And as we sit in our building, our minds may well turn back to days when we were younger and when others were alongside us. And we see on the walls those plaques that mention the good and the great from days gone by. And these memories are good and they are right. But even these memories cannot be a substitute for real and present personal faith. If our church buildings are solely what this author calls a museum of England, then, as a former pastor of mine once said, our ministers become curators of museums and our congregations a historical society like the sealed knot who meet to reenact battles from the English Civil War, but who have a limited grasp of the world at the beginning of the second millennium. One of my favourite trips out as a boy was to go to the Natural History Museum in London and to see the bones of the dinosaurs that had died out millions of years ago. At one time I suppose that I might have wanted to be a curator of such a museum, but that idea seems to have lost its attraction. I want to be involved with the living and not be keeping the dust off the bones of the dead and trying to keep alive a memory. I have a hunch that few of those listening to this podcast particularly relish the idea of being either exhibits or someone else's barely remembered legacy. I hope that I'm right, because I believe that the nature of the contemporary Christian community is strongly linked to what John's final vision has to say to us. As we come to the, right at the end of the Bible, the last two chapters, we find some familiar images waiting for us. The image of Babylon, the whore city, has been replaced by that of a new Jerusalem, described as a bride adorned for her husband. And then God himself spoke in a loud voice from the throne and announced that God would no longer be apart from the people he has made, he would dwell among them. The verb that we translate as live or dwell comes from a noun that means a tent. It's the same word that we find in the first chapter of the Gospel according to John, 
where there we read the words, and the word became flesh and lived among us. I like the idea of God living among us in the sense of his pitching his tent with us. I'm not saying that I could cope with it 52 weeks of the year, but one of the features of holiday camping that I enjoy is the element of communal living that is a part of living in tents pitched on adjacent plots of ground. The first chapter of John's story of Jesus tells us that because of what he is about to write, God has come to be part of our lives. The idea of a tent is one that's worth pursuing because tents, or tabernacles as they're sometimes called, are an important part of the story of God's people. Of course, Abraham and his family were people who always lived in tents, like the Bedouin tribesmen of the Middle East in this century. Likewise, Isaac, Jacob and his sons, Moses and his people camped in the wilderness and alongside Mount Sinai when God made his covenant with Israel. From that time, there was a special tent in which Moses met with God, and from then until Solomon built the temple, a tent was God's sanctuary on earth. We find a number of descriptions of the temple in the Old Testament. In the book of Revelation, John also turns to a description of a building. Yet there are differences, and these differences are significant. The range of materials used in the construction that John describes includes 12 different precious stones, pearls and gold. In the Old Testament, we are presented with a much more mundane list of materials used by Solomon to build his temple. While Solomon used the finest materials, which were resourced from all over the world, what we have here is a list of building supplies. It's not the otherworldly list of jewels that we see in Revelation. The city is God's city, so it's built of jewels, not cedar wood, nor even the finest linen. Yet it is a city which is built, John tells us, on the foundations of the twelve apostles. When Paul wrote a letter to the Galatians, he referred to the apostles in Jerusalem as the pillars of the church. It's hard not to get the impression that this was said somewhat tongue-in-cheek. These men had been shown to be weak and lacking in courage when strength and bravery was most needed. Even after the resurrection, when the church was beginning to grow and spread, they were confused and uncertain about the way forward. For example, over how those who were not Jews could be included in the church. Yet these men are included in John's description as being those whose names are worthy to be written on the foundations of the New Jerusalem. On the one hand, the city is clearly divinely built. There is also the suggestion that it stands with the support of human endeavour. The city is divinely built, but there is a part for God's people to play. I don't want to get too bogged down on what should be our role and what should be left to God, but it seems consistent with the message of the New Testament elsewhere that we have a part in building God's kingdom, the kingdom which Jesus inaugurated and glimpses and signs of which we see in our world. God's kingdom is not something that will happen in the blink of an eye at the end of the age. God's kingdom is being built now, and while the materials might be God's, Some of the sweat may be ours. It's also significant that the building that's described in Revelation is different from that in the Old Testament. There we read about a temple, 
but John describes a city. In fact, in verse 22, he records that he couldn't see a temple in the city because the temple is the Lord God himself and the Lamb. There is no room for the old-style temple in the New Jerusalem. The old temple was a means of discrimination, discrimination by race, gender and caste. The temple was a symbol of Israel's separation from the unclean nations. But now there is no God's people and the nations, because the notion of God's people transcends all human boundaries, barriers and categories. The structure that John describes and in which God will dwell is a city, not a temple. It's a place where people live and meet. It is not a place that is exclusive. The idea of the holiness of the temple has now been extended to the whole city in the way that the priesthood has been extended to all people, no matter their race, gender or caste. There is no special place for God because God is abroad in the world. In conclusion, I want to return to some of the thoughts connected to the book that I mentioned at the beginning. The Old Testament's feeling towards the temple are not always positive. Some of the twelve tribes who lived north of Jerusalem felt that the city did not deserve its status and that the temple had no right to be the centre of Israel's worship. Certainly the building of the temple seems to have been strongly linked to the establishment of the monarchy, which was unfortunate as royal dynasties were no better then than now, and the purity of the temple frequently ran the risk of being compromised by association with rather dodgy kings. The temple's present adjacent to the king's palace was partly responsible for its destruction when the city was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. After Israel's exile in Babylon ended, there was a move to rebuild the temple, There were some who believed that rebuilding the temple would get the nation back on an even keel and give the people a focal point. This is a persuasive argument and one which would be familiar to church people in many ages. One problem with focusing people on a common purpose, such as rebuilding the temple, is that it necessarily narrows down vision so that other issues such as social justice and the true mission of the church for those outside can become overlooked. Yet people in all ages have done what Peter did when he wanted to build some huts for Moses, Jesus and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter's first instinct was to preserve the spiritual experience in a building. Yet what Revelation tells us is that we have no need of a special place where we can arrange to meet God, nor do we need to contain him like a genie in a bottle. The holy place of Christianity is a corpse, the body of the lamb that was slain, and in our world that body is the church, the people who follow Christ and so are said to have died with him. The temple in the age of the church is the church. Not that our buildings are temples, But these communities of human believers, people who struggle with limited finance, limited power, limited human resources, but who are faithful to Jesus, these are the places where God dwells. The city is his temple, the place where the people live and where they work. The author of that book about a thousand English churches is not a practicing Christian. We might ask, is there any other kind? 
It's rather like the question about whether one can be a Christian and not go to church. The author of Revelation would most probably answer, no, you can't. John's vision describes a city. It's a vision of a community, not of privatized religion. It is a reminder that throughout the Bible, from beginning to end, religious life is centered around God's relationship with a community of people and with the relationships between the people within the community. The fallacy that wealth can create paradise has been shown up in the destruction of Babylon and the beast. And we should not replace one fallacy with another and imagine that Christianity is simply about the individual's hope of salvation and so lose sight of the central place of the community. The final part of John's vision also has strong roots in the Old Testament. There a river flowed out from the temple to refresh the land. But in John's vision, the river flows directly from the throne of God because God is at the heart of the community. The community has God at its centre and the people see him face to face and they bear his mark and so share his character. Revelation is a strange book full of wonderful otherworldly images. It also has the capacity to stir the emotions as in the achingly moving passage which tells of an end to human suffering. My overwhelming reaction to the book of Revelation is of discovering in these visions a God who is in control and a God who has transformed the world but who has done so almost without our awareness. So we see signs and we wonder. Yet while it is at times so otherworldly it is also strangely rooted in our experience and it ends where we are in the city where we're called to live, work and serve our God. Here we hope for something different and we dare to proclaim God's justice in a world which is governed by different rules. As we do so, we live a life which is rooted in a time when death will be no more, mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. For the one who is seated on the throne says, See, I'm making all things new. And he does that in our world. He does that in our church. And he does that in our hearts.
Let us pray. God of the past, the present and the future, what next is such a big question. But we trust you for all that is to come as we pray for the world in turmoil. Those where entire cities have been destroyed and infrastructures paralysed in Syria, in Ukraine, in Yemen and in many more places. May the old order of war pass away and a new order of peace flourish. We pray for countries and communities where crops have been decimated and livestock have perished. May the old order of famine pass away, and a new order of abundance flourish. And what next is such a big question for young people too. We pray for those around the world thinking about careers, about next steps, for all, especially girls and young women in Afghanistan and elsewhere, who are denied an education. 
for those who struggle to see a future for themselves at all. May the old orders of pressure and prejudice pass away and a new order of confidence and opportunity flourish. What next is such a big question for those who feel at the end of their strength. We pray for those caring for children with complex needs, for those caring for family with dementia or chronic illness, for those suffering from depression, for those worn out by grief. May the old order of struggle pass away and the new order of support flourish. And what next is such a big question for our churches and for ourselves. We pray for wisdom for those who guide and lead, for resilience for congregations amid indifference, and for ourselves as we navigate the challenges of living faithfully today, tomorrow, and the next day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, oh, oh.
Our last piece of music is a country gospel song that I first heard the morning I arrived in India for my first visit. It was a most unexpected cultural experience as I heard a group of young men from a fairly remote part of India singing an American gospel song in their church. We really do live in a global village. But first, a final prayer. God, who is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end of all things, you know our past, the burdens we carry. We know that you will wipe away every tear and make all things new. Though we cannot always see the work you are doing, help us to learn from the past, help us to live in the present, and help us to have hope for the future. In all of life's joys and sadnesses, may we love one another as you love us. Amen. Is straight and narrow, but it leads to a better home. It was laid by Christ one day at Calvary while he suffered all along. This road may lead over many high mountains and valleys dark and low, but I walk each day with sweet assurance and I'll safely reach my home. Ahead, ahead, there's joy and gladness and rest for the weary soul. Ahead, ahead, there's peace and contentment. Everybody will be happy and whole. I know that I'll be, I'll be at home with Jesus where tears will never be shed. Though so often this road gets rough and rocky, still I know what lies ahead. While on this road I get so weary and often my feet would stray. But a gentle hand still leads me onward and helps me find a way as I climb each hill. And cross each valley by his hand I'm daily led But I won't look back, gonna keep on walking For I know what lies ahead Ahead, ahead there's joy and gladness and rest for the weary soul Ahead, ahead, there's peace and contentment, everybody 